All right, so we're in Numbers. Last week we read through Numbers 16, and we got about mm, two-thirds of the way through. We stopped at verse 34. <clears throat> but the reason that we did that is because in the Hebrew Bible, verse 34 is the last verse of chapter 16, and verse 35 in English Bibles is, or excuse me, verse 36 in English Bibles is the beginning of chapter 17 in Hebrew Bibles. So if, you're, um, if you had a Jewish Bible, for instance, like a modern English Jewish Bible, the uh, chapter might be different. And that's just another reminder. We've said it before, but it's always worth repeating. Chapters and verses are not original to the text. They were added hundreds, actually thousands of years later, if we're talking about the Hebrew text. And so we can feel free to disregard them because they are meaningless uh, as anything other than a way to just organize the text so that everybody can know they're on the same page when they're reading corporately. So in chapter 17, I'm going to stick with the Hebrew, um, chapter 17 begins with basically the, the rebellion of chapter 16, Korah, Dathan, Abiram uh, on the, this rebellion that they had where God showed up and basically vouched for Moses and Aaron, particularly Aaron with the priesthood, in a major way and, and stamped down the rebellion uh, through supernatural means. The ground actually opened up and swallowed. The land devoured the rebels. And that's the irony from previous chapters when they refused to enter the promised land. They said the land will devour, it, it devours its inhabitants. So in an ironic twist, uh, the land that they're in, refusing to go into the promised land, is what actually devoured these rebels. And that's what they were. They were rebels. They weren't people that just erred or, or made a mistake or whatever. And these were people who were seeking to usurp the priesthood. Basically, they were trying to take over this traveling Mount Sinai. They were trying to force their way into the presence of God so that they would then be the top dogs uh, among their fellow Israelites. So it's important to realize it's not just an act of they misspoke or they wanted to, they wanted to serve God too. No, none of that. God had already made ways for everybody to serve Him all the way uh, from, from the least to the greatest and in so many capacities. This was a power grab. This was an attempted coup. And God shut it down. And He shut it down in a major way. And so, verse 34 says, at their cries, and, and the cries are the, the ground swallowing them up, all the Israelites around them fled, shouting, the earth is going to swallow us too. And fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. These were the 250 men of great name, the text says, renowned men, leaders in the community who had basically said, we are going to offer our own incense. And they filled their censers with strange fire. And we know what happens from Leviticus 10 when somebody offers strange fire on God's altar. The fire consumes them. And so now, in verse 36, the Lord said to Moses, and this is chapter 17 in Hebrew, the Lord said to Moses, Tell Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, to take the censers out of the smoldering remains of the people who just got burned up and scatter the coals some distance away. For the censers are holy, the censers of the men who sinned at the cost of their lives. Hammer the censers into sheets to overlay the altar, for they were presented before the Lord and have become holy. Let them be a sign to the Israelites. So these implements, these censers that these wannabe priests uh, took to offer 
God said, that, that, my fire burned it. My fire consumed. The sacrifice worked. It's just that their sacrifice was their lives. They were consumed instead of the animals that priests are to offer in, in God's judgment. So God's judgment consumed the sinner, but the implement, the means by which the incense was offered, that, God said, but that's come in contact with my fire. That's holy. So you're not just going to throw it away. Remember, what comes in contact with the altar, what comes in contact with God's presence is holy. So God says, instead, you're going to take these censers, these little things that you burn incense in that are made of bronze, and you're going to hammer it out and cover the altar, literally cover the altar with the remains of these censers that these wannabe priests, usurpers, tried to offer. And let that be a sign to the Israelites. Let that be something that the Israelites will see and this will be an ongoing object lesson. Remember from our study of Exodus, God is big about object lessons. God teaches in the Old Testament through object lessons. We tend to teach through spoken propositions and logic and uh, points that lead to other points that then follow conclusions, things like that. We, we speak and teach propositionally. In many ancient cultures, and particularly elsewhere in the world, teaching is done primarily through uh, sensory imagery, visuals. There's a reason why temples are some of the most beautiful structures in the world of any religion. I mean, any religion in the world, their temples are usually the greatest architecture in any culture is usually its temple or religious buildings. And the greatest artwork almost always comes from a culture's religious iconography or religious imagery or mythological imagery. There's a reason for this. That's what, there's, there's a reason that incense permeates most religions in the world or something fragrant, whether it's flowers or oils or incense. You find these things in all religions because humanity has an innate sensory appreciation of things and we learn through other means than just spoken proposition. This is something that we Protestants in the West tend to underemphasize because we've elevated the speaking and the preaching role. So the center of our church services is almost always the sermon. Even on weeks where they do communion, communion comes after the sermon and sometimes it's almost an afterthought. This is very different from Eastern Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Coptic, or Catholic services where the sermon is almost just, uh, well, if we have time, we'll have a sermon. But the main point is the Mass or the taking of the Eucharist or the, just all of the stuff that goes with it. Well, that's how that, that harkens back to the Old Testament and how God designed these things for His people. These were to be signs. These were to be uh, symbols. These were to be images that permeated the people's lives. Every time they entered the temple, they would see, oh, that's the altar. That's where our sins are atoned. That's where God takes and receives our sacrifice instead of taking and receiving our lives as happened to those 250 men. So there's, there's powerful symbolism in this, and God's not done in terms of symbolism. So Eliezer the priest collected the bronze censers brought by those who had been burned up, and he had them hammered out to overlay the altar as the Lord directed him through Moses. This was to remind the Israelites that no one except a descendant of Aaron should come to burn incense before the Lord, or he would become like Korah and his followers. The next day the whole Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. You have killed the Lord's people, they said. Strike two. <laughs> Actually, this is like strike 12. Um, the people, you would think, this is the generation. This is the generation that has forfeit their salvation. This generation, this generation is doomed. 
They are going to die in the desert and there's nothing anyone can do about it. So they are, don't expect a change of heart from them. They only have one and a half more chapters before they're dead. So this is, this generation is a lost. They are, to borrow from our reformed friends, they are reprobate. They're not going to change. And you don't see a change in how they, they, they look at the work of God and they attribute it to evil that Moses and Aaron are responsible for. There's no hope for them. That is characteristic of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Seeing the direct work of God and attributing it, calling it evil. That's exactly what Jesus said. That is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit and will not be forgiven. Why? Because you are rejecting the very means by which forgiveness is possible which is the Holy Spirit's work, God's work in the midst of His people. If you reject that, if you say that's evil, then it's like you're drowning and somebody throws you a rope and you reject the rope saying, this is you're trying to hang me. You're trying to strangle me. Right? That's, you, well, you're going to drown. Why? Because the person don't want to save you? No, because you're rejecting the means for salvation itself and calling it evil. And that's what this generation has done and will continue to do in the eyes of God. So they grumble again. Verse 42, But when the assembly gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron and turned toward the tent of meeting, suddenly the cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord appeared. This just happened last time. Last week this happened, or in the previous chapter. When it did, the earth swallowed up people and 250 people were consumed by God's holy fire. So that should give a sense of dread about what's, what's about to happen. This is not good. This is not a good thing. Um, verse 43 then Moses and Aaron went to the front of the tent of meeting and the Lord said to Moses get away from this assembly so that I can put an end to them at once but they fell face down then Moses and Aaron then Moses said to Aaron take your censer put incense in it along with fire from the altar not strange fire that the usurpers offered but fire from the altar God's fire and hurry to the assembly to make atonement for them wrath has come out from the Lord the plague has started. So Aaron did as Moses said and ran into the midst of the assembly. The plague had already started among the people, but Aaron offered the incense and made atonement for them. He stood between the living and the dead and the plague stopped. But 14 Eleph, we've already discussed this at the beginning of Numbers, whether it's thousand, whether it's whatever, so I'm just leaving it in Hebrew. 14 Eleph, 700 people, died from the plague in addition to those who had died because of Korah. Then Aaron returned to Moses at the entrance to the tent of meeting for the plague had stopped. So this is a remarkable passage. God says, that's it. I'm done. Back up. I'm going to wipe them out. Interestingly, Moses and Aaron fall face down. They don't try to talk God out of it this time. Moses doesn't try to plead with God like he did last time. Because the people, there is no righteousness here. There's nothing, they, they, they fully deserve it. There's no merit among the people. There's not a question of will the innocent perish along with the wicked. In this sense, the, it, the community has gone headlong into uh, past the point of no return. And so Moses, though, in an act of holy defiance, you might say, which is, brings up a lot of questions, but the text tells us, tells the Aaron, hey, you're a priest. Do your priest thing. Go. The plague has started. This tells us that whatever God meant by I'm going to wipe them out wasn't just a quick wipe them off, but rather I'm going to wipe them out. And the instrument he used was this plague. We don't know what kind of plague. 
We know plague is a general term. It comes from the verb to, to touch or to strike or to smite. It could have been a sickness. It could have been a supernatural thing. I mean, the, the 10 plagues of Egypt, you know, some of those were like frogs. So we don't consider, you know, plague means more than just you get sick or boils on your skin or whatever. It can mean it's just a judgment by God has started. And so without even asking, without even pleading God, uh, Moses tells Aaron to do it. Aaron runs, goes into the midst of the people with the incense from the altar of God. And, and it's just, it's so mysterious in its brevity. Because it doesn't explain how, it doesn't explain there's no blood offered, there's no this and that, there's just Aaron the living high priest. And he is the high priest. Standing between death and life. And stopping death. There's incredible symbolism in that. I mean, that is a visual summary of what priests are supposed to do. That's a summary of what Israel is called to do as a nation. Remember, Exodus 19, I will make you a kingdom of priests. That's the role of God's people. To stand, to, he doesn't run to the border of the people and look on from afar and wave incense and hope that God does it. No, he goes into the midst of the people. He goes into the plague. There's a reason Jesus would go and touch the unclean. There's a reason He would go and eat with the sinners. There's a reason He would go into the dirt and the muck and the grime and the uncleanness of a graveyard to reach a guy who was demon-possessed. There's a reason for that. Because this is the paradox. God's holiness is unapproachable. But God's holiness can be taken into the midst of the most unclean. Right into the gates of hell. Into death itself and put a stop to it. We don't know how. We don't know how that works. And that throws a loop in a lot of Levitical theology about the neat separation. You know, priests are supposed to be separate. They're supposed to stay pure. And in this instance, when, when it's literally a matter of life and death, He is commanded, go right into the face of death. Go into the face of death and stop it. And so this, again, is, is this balance we see in Scripture. You know, Jesus tells the Good Samaritan parable, and we always think, you know, the, the priest and the Levite, they passed by on the other side because they were hard-hearted. No, not necessarily. They were priests and Levites. They were in a state of Levitical purity and cleanliness. They pass by and they see a guy laying, for their thoughts, dead on the road. That's going to make them impure if they go touch that dead body. They were doing what they're supposed to do. And then in the parable, it's the Samaritan who actually goes and takes the man. And, and there's a whole lot in that parable to unpack. But one of the points is, is a subtle critique against this concept of ritual cleanliness is when, it, when it's an issue of life and death, you see God making exceptions. You see that, that God puts the priority where it needs to be. And there's, there's weightier and there's heavier things of the law. And so in this instance, you know, Aaron's seemingly breaking high priestly protocol but he's doing it in order to do the very thing that the entire priesthood is, is supposed to be symbolic of anyway. Coming between the living and the dead. Between death itself, God's righteous judgment on sinners, and an undeserving, unmerited, sinful people. And that's a, there's a huge foreshadowing of the Gospel in this. And the whole dynamic theologically of the gospel and what it does you know Jesus the high priest going into the midst of death and actually more than Aaron not standing between the living and the dead but actually going into the dead itself Jesus actually dying going into the tomb three days and then rising up 
conquering death. So whereas Aaron's a shadow or an image of a, what a high priest should be, Jesus is the true high priest, greater than Aaron, who actually goes deeper than Aaron did into the face of death. So all of this is powerful, powerful symbolism that could easily go unnoticed if we're just reading through quickly and asking uh, surface questions. So, <clears throat> what in your English Bible is chapter 17, but it's just continuing chapter 17 in Hebrew, the Lord said to Moses, we're not done with this whole priest motif yet, speak to the Israelites, get 12 staffs from them, one from the leader of each of their ancestral tribes. Write the name of each man on his staff. On the staff of Levi, write Aaron's name. For there must be one staff for the head of each ancestral tribe. Point of just the, may get lost. The word in Hebrew for staff is the word for tribe. The, the, the word mate, it means staff or it means tribe. So there's a word play going on here. It's not just a random thing. Like these staffs are going to stand for... It'd be like saying... Bring me a staff. Okay, this staff represents the staff of this office. Right? This staff represents the staff of this office. Like, stick represents the staff, the employees. That's the closest thing I guess you can get in English to this wordplay. But that's what's going on here. So, on the staff right, uh, let's see, verse 4. Place them in the tent of meeting, in front of the testimony. That's the ark, where I meet you. Place them in the tabernacle. Put these staffs, these 12 staffs, write, everybody's, write each tribe's name, and then write the leader of that tribe, their name. Put it, in the, uh, right where, put it in the heart of the testimony, the heart of the tabernacle. The Holy of Holies. Or at the very least, right outside the curtain of the Holy of Holies. Just in the tabernacle itself. Uh, the staff belonging to the man I choose will sprout. And I will rid myself of this constant grumbling against you by the Israelites. So Moses spoke to the Israelites, and their later leaders gave him twelve staffs, one for the leader of each of their ancestral tribes. And Aaron's staff was among them. Moses placed the staffs before the Lord in the tent of testimony. So in the tabernacle, next to the ark, in the presence of God. The next day Moses entered the tent of testimony and saw that Aaron's staff which represented the house of Levi, had not only sprouted, but had budded, blossomed, and produced almonds. Then Moses brought out all the staffs from the Lord's presence to all the Israelites. They looked at them, and each man took his own staff. The Lord said to Moses, put, Aaron, put back Aaron's staff in front of the testimony to be kept as a sign to the rebellious. Another sign. This will put an end to their grumbling against me so that they will not die. Moses did just as the Lord commanded him. The Israelites said to Moses, we will die. We are lost. We are all lost. Anyone who even comes near the tabernacle of the Lord will die. Are we all going to die? And the chapter ends. Now the answer to their question is yes. You are all going to die. Uh, you have approached the Lord's holiness. You have violated His holiness over and over. And a number of you have already died. And the rest of you are going to die in the wilderness. But the people of Israel are not going to die as a whole because there's a new generation. And you dying in the wilderness will be one of the other signs for that generation. Because they're going to enter in the promised land and they're going to, for generations after, they're going to ask, like, what do these things mean? What is Passover about? Why do we do these sacrifices? What's that bronze on that altar? Why are there sticks inside the tabernacle? And why, or why does a stick in the tabernacle have almonds coming out of it? What does that mean? What's this jar of stuff 
this, this manna stuff. You know, these are the questions that the next generation is going to ask. So this generation, their fate is sealed. But they are continuing to serve as a sign or a visual reminder or a, a full life reminder to their children after them. God's not done with them yet. Even though they will not enter and receive His salvation, He's not done with them. And so, a point of interest, why, what is going on with staff and budding of almonds? And why does that matter? Um, the word for blossomed, you know, it, it blossomed and produced almonds. The word for blossomed is the word that's used back in Exodus 28 and I think, yeah, 28 and 39. It's the word that's used to describe the gold plate that the high priest wears on his head that says, Holy to the Lord. It's the same word. So it's, think of the priest having a blossom on his head that says, Holy to the Lord. Even It's a gold plate. But it's the same term. So there's symbolism there because this is, the pre, this is God vouching for the whole, this whole quandary is over which tribe is the priestly tribe. Which tribe gets to enter into the Lord's presence? Which tribe gets to minister? Which tribe gets to wear that blossom on their head that says holy to the Lord when they approach and offer sacrifices? So God makes Aaron's staff blossom. And that's a powerful sign. Uh, producing almonds. What's going on with almonds? Well, God likes word plays and He likes puns. And in Jeremiah chapter 1, we actually can see what this pun would have to say. In Jeremiah 1, I think verse 11, God shows Jeremiah a vision. He says, Jeremiah, what do you see? Jeremiah says, I see an almond tree. God says, that's right. I'm watching over my word to see that it happens. And we just read that in English and go, all right, I don't get it, God. Well, because the word for to watch is the same consonants, the same word as almond. So the, it's a wordplay. It's like, well, I think one shakad and one shokade or something like that. But it's the same verb. So the almond, come, the, the, the word for almond comes from the verb to watch or to, to uh, wait expectantly or to, not, to, to look over, to look after. That's what it comes from. Now, how it got that name, how almonds got, I don't know. Maybe because the shape of an almond and the shape of the eye, you know, something like that. Who knows? But the concept is that almond has that significance of watching over. And this is what God's doing with this staff. This, is, this staff buds, it blossoms, and it doesn't just blossom flowers, it blossoms almonds. God is watching over His people, and it does it in the place where God meets with His people, in the Holy of Holies, inside the tabernacle. In other words, if you try to approach, God is watching. God is watching. So all of this is, is subtle symbolism that comes from you know, word plays in a language that we're not reading the Bible in, so we miss a lot of it. And again, as this Bible study is, tries to be like a tour guide, you know, walking you through the text and pointing things out, most of you probably wouldn't have caught that on your own unless you had a good commentary or a good study Bible. But it's those kind of things that the original readers and the original audience would have heard and, and would have meditated on. And again, it's all going into what God's doing here with His people. These are object lessons. These are, these are visuals. These are, he's teaching through actions. He's teaching through events. He's teaching through what they, everything from what they see to what they hear to what they smell to what they taste. He's, he's speaking His truths to people. And so that's part of our job in reading through the Israel in the wilderness is, is picking up those hints, picking up those notes, picking up those, 
those little things that God is trying to instill because all of this was written for the people who would come after these people. None of this was done for these people. They're going to die. This is all being done for the next generation and the generations that will follow. So that's why when you get to the New Testament, Paul can say, all of this was written for us because it was written for us, for our use and our looking back and our gleaning from it. None of it was written to us, but it was all written for us. And so that's what we want to do as readers of Scripture. So, uh, chapter 18 then, next week we'll look. Chapter 18, they, they end with that. We're all going to die. Are we all going to die? Um, yeah, but 18 is going to discuss this role of this whole concept of priesthood. And it's going to give some final regulations for uh, just, just ingraining in them the concept of what you are. Because the priesthood is not just for the priests. The priesthood is for all of Israel. Even though all of Israel aren't called to be Levitical priests, all of Israel are called to be priests to the world. And by extension, as we know from 1 Peter, all believers are called to be priests in God's kingdom. We are continuing the lineage of what was begun back here. So we're going to get one more chapter dealing with that and a chapter dealing with the, the, this ritual of cleansing and the water of cleansing. And then this generation's done. They're dead. In chapter 20, we'll start the new generation, their offspring, and the second part of the book of Numbers. So, we're out of time now. Have a great week, everybody. Stay dry and uh, grab some more food if you'd like. I've got to, if you're interested in making a donation to the ministry of Disciple Dojo, you appreciate this teaching ministry, uh, you want to support it, there's an iPad here, credit card reader, you can do that even if you don't have cash. If you haven't left a tip for the kitchen staff, do that first. That's more important uh, because they're the ones that bring us the food. Then, if you're just feeling especially generous, you can do that after that. Have a great week.